chapter 12, and the next three times, including the next two times that I speak, we'll be thinking in terms of dinner with the King today, dinner with the Messiah on Good Friday, and then dinner with the Son of God on Easter Sunday. Uh, In John's presentation, there's some unique um, meals that are shared together, and so I'm going to be highlighting some of these in the Passion Week as we look forward to celebrating the resurrection next Sunday. Um, It is good to be back and to be speaking uh, in my home church. I'm thankful for that. Um, Had the opportunity to speak elsewhere uh, last week. Last week, small country church in uh, Galway, New York. I had a friend there who I went had a class with in January, and uh, he asked me to do him a favor to speak for him on a Sunday after doing a theological society meeting on Saturday to lift his load a little bit. And uh, so it worked out very well for us. And I heard that uh, Jeremy's message was very helpful last Sunday. Uh, very thankful that he could give that to us. Uh, I'd been putting that one off for a little bit. I don't know if you realize this, but he was actually scheduled to preach that sermon back in January, and then we had a snow day. And so I said, well, you hang on to that sermon. There'll be a time you can use it. So he did it uh, this past Sunday. Uh, But John chapter 12, verses 1 to 19 is our text this morning. And I want to ask a question of you as we start to anticipate this message and this sermon. Have you ever been so close to something that you could, you know, you could touch it, but you really couldn't see it? I don't know, maybe it was the socks in the drawer, you just couldn't, you couldn't see it, but it was there, and then your wife comes over, or your, maybe it's the opposite, maybe it's the husband comes over and pulls it out and says, hey, look, it's right there. Maybe it was the hammer on the workbench, and it just could have bit you on the nose, right? Um, maybe it was a person, They were just right there, but you just couldn't see it. Well, as I said, this past week I was away at a theological society meeting, and when I arrived at the unfamiliar campus I had never been to before, it was just north of Boston, and I met a lady who worked at the school at uh, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and she was kind of welcoming me to the campus and kind of helping guide me to uh, the main meeting area. And so I learned her name. Her name was uh, Johanna, which should have stood out in my mind because uh, Johanna is a little bit different than my typical Joanna that I typically meet with. And uh, so after about two hours of eating, uh, or after two hours of the morning, we then had lunch and shared lunch around, around tables. And as we began discussing some of the lectures that we had heard, um, and other areas of study were coming up, and we were talking about them, getting all excited. This uh, lady sits down at the table, and she starts um, getting excited about my, my thesis that I was preparing, you know, and on Jonathan Edwards, Jr., because he was from New England, and, and it was so interesting to her that this is New England, and that God's Spirit was seen to be doing some renewing work in her world in New England. And uh, as the conversation was beginning to close, and she got ready to to leave the table. I said, I don't know if we've met before. My name is John. Your name is? And she said, Johanna. Oh, did I ever feel like I wanted to crawl underneath that table and just go hide somewhere? Uh, 
But that, that can happen, you know? Unfamiliar, you, you, you're kind of disoriented, and uh, you miss the obvious. Uh, but that's kind of what we're looking at here this morning is missing the obvious. Uh, there was, in these two scenes, in, in uh, the close of Jesus' life, we're going to be seeing onlookers at a dinner party and also kind of like a patriotic pep rally. Two contrasting scenes, one a little bit more quiet, a little more intimate, the other one very loud, very, um, a very dynamic, and yet they each have something in common. The king is present, but no one sees him, really, for who he is. And I think that there is within humanity this bizarre blindness to be able to miss the obvious. The obvious, as I said, can be so close but yet so far away. In fact, this doesn't have to be physical objects. It can be spiritual truths. In fact, we can see the truth. We can actually look at the truth on the printed page, but the truth be so far away that we can't actually see it. We can have a spiritual blindness. We can come to a church service. We can sing the songs. We can hear the sermon and be completely blind to what we ought to see. Yet in this text, there was one lady who did see very clearly. One woman who did see. But why is it that we cannot often see as we ought to see? Why and how does this occur? This is the question that we're going to be asking ourselves of these texts as we work through them. And the big idea that I'd like to share this morning is that when we cannot see, we need to see how desperately we need to see. And so he, the gospel writer here, he joins these two events together, the dinner party, the triumphal entry. And as I said, everyone is blinded except for one, one lady who sees who Jesus really is. So I think as we begin to look at these things, I think we should take a moment to pause. I think that we should take a moment to pray and ask for the humility to acknowledge that we may be more likely to identify not with the lady who sees who Jesus is, but everyone else. And I think that we ought to pause and ask that our spiritual senses would be enlivened and enriched. So let's just take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you recognizing that we are just simply clay, clay on your potter's wheel, desperate in need of the Spirit's filling the Spirit's illuminating and working within our hearts that we might see you. May we truly see you, Lord, this morning. May we think and observe the interior of our heart as it really is and express our neediness to you. And may you fill us, Father, even as the fragrance in that room filled the whole house. Father, would you fill our hearts? And we ask this in your precious name. Amen. And so, as we look at these events, I want us to see that John highlights different senses, 
different senses. In the first incidence, we see smell. There is a fragrance that fills the room, but yet there is a blindness, a lack of sight. In the second one, the second instance, we're going to see sound, a city disturbed and completely unglued, loud excitement, sound, smell, thinking about sight and the lack of sight. So verses 1 through 8, the smell, the fragrance fills the room. I came to the dinner party because I had heard that Lazarus would be there. It was hosted by Simon the leper. His house was in Bethany. He was a pretty wealthy man. He, he had the largest home in the village. Oh, but don't worry. No, he, he's no longer been a leper. He's just simply called Simon the leper. You know, the rabbi from Nazareth, Jesus, some call him a prophet. Some people, others call him a Christ. He one day met him, I heard, on the way through a village. He met him with a few others, and he sent them to the high priest to examine their skin. And as, as Simon was walking towards the, the, to the temple in Jerusalem, he noticed that his, his skin had been completely changed. It was like a baby's newborn skin. He ran back to Jesus to thank him for what he had done. Well, you know, I couldn't get very far into the room. Everyone was pushing, pushing for an opportunity to look, look at Lazarus. But we kept a respectful distance. We watched Martha bring the plates of food and lay them out before everyone, putting them on the table. Martha had been asked to organize the meal for Simon's special guest. You know, Martha, of course, she's, she's a wonderful caterer. Her talent is in such high demand. Well, they were there lying, uh, reclining at the table. They were laying on their side. They were propping up their, their hand, you know, with, with, the other, and the, with the other they were feeding themselves. The Romans had conquered us, and some of our nation had adopted the style of eating of our conquerors. Usually it was more the wealthy people. The wealthy people. Funny how that works. Simon's money meant absolutely nothing when he was a leper. Martha was moving the meal along, and as I was watching, uh, I noticed that her sister Mary stepped forward. And to everyone's surprise, Mary took out from her garments an alabaster box with spinknard in it. As she opened the box, the intense, warm, fragrant, dusty notes began to fill the room even before she had anointed Jesus' feet, and she poured it all out upon him. And as she wiped his, his feet with her hair, I heard Judas mutter that the perfume should have been sold to feed the poor. I couldn't really analyze what Judas was saying because the fragrance was so intense, it was nauseating. It, it filled the room. And as I was choking on the air, Jesus was, was chiding Judas saying, leave her alone so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. And then he said, 
something really strange, something I couldn't really get. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So what does this all mean? I tried to bring you into the story. What is going on here? Well, there are two interpretations that are taking place as the smell permeates the whole room. Judas has an interpretation, but Jesus also has an interpretation. Judas's interpretation is this is this is wasteful. I mean, I really think though that we should cut Judas a little bit of slack. Because if you were there in that room choking on the smell, you probably would have thought the same thing. John also throws in a little detail in verse 6. He fills in some of the gaps. He's doing a little bit of an interpretation here on Judas. And he says, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put in. See, words... Attitudes, actions come from somewhere. Where do they come from? Words come because they have started in the heart and in the mind. People, you know, are adulterers first in the heart. People are liars in their minds first. People are murderers in their heart first. Judas was a thief first because he was one in his heart first. People sin because they're sinners first in the heart. So Judas... The crowd, they all smell this intense fragrance filling the room. And what did Judas say? Wasteful. Wasteful. Because he was greedy and a thief in his heart first. That's why he interpreted events the way they were, as he saw them, because that's how he was in the heart. There's another interpretation, though, here, and Jesus interprets it correctly. He sees it as worshipfulness. Now, some scholars believe that this ointment that Mary opened up on Jesus' feet was probably equivalent to nearly a, wa- a year's wages. And in all likelihood, for Mary was a part of her dowry as a single lady. And the gift of the ointment for a woman of a marriageable age with expectation was almost like the ultimate gift to Jesus. She depleted her potential for gaining an equivalent husband, if you will. These dowries were sometimes like things to attract men. I know that's very warped. But that's how it was in that day. But I also see something else. 
that ointment was fully in her possession. And it was very likely that she was intending to take some of that ointment, if not all of it, and pour that on her brother Lazarus. That would have been wasteful. That would have been wasteful. But instead, she pours it out on the one who gives life. That's worshipful. She pours it out in gratitude to Jesus. You see, Mary saw Jesus for who he was, the king of life, the true king of kings, who had the infinite power to raise her brother from the dead. And her heart was full of worship. Why is it that she is the only one in the room capable of seeing Jesus for who he is and the one worthy of pouring out upon? It's because she had spiritual eyes to see. There was something in her heart that was open and ready to worship Christ. Number two, the the second incident. Let's look at that for a moment. And we're going to come back to the spiritual motif in a little bit. But let's look at the next segment, verses 12 to 19. We have the hearing. We have the sound filling the city. And I'm going to kind of describe how it may have appeared by synthesizing not just this account, but also the other gospel writers into one little flow of narration. At about mid-afternoon, Jesus left Bethany to enter into Jerusalem. It was spring and growth had already begun in earnest. The pale pink blossoms of the almond tree greeted the people as they walked the well-worn path to the beautiful city. And excitement was in the air. Pilgrims from afar joined with disciples and friendly chatter started to to take place. Approaching Bethphage, Jesus drew the disciples to the side of the road and motioned to Peter and John to come near. While the band of men waited, Peter and John entered into a small little village and found a previously arranged colt sitting there. They untied it. Disciples signaled to the owner that uh, the Lord had a plan for it. And so they coaxed the colt with its donkey mother and brought the two to Jesus. By then, the, the traveling group had become a crowd, and pilgrims from Galilee began to surround Jesus, many of these people being beneficiaries of his miracles and of his grace. As reports of Jesus was coming to the city, made their way around, people came out to greet him, and they wanted also to see Lazarus, whom they had heard Jesus had brought from the dead. But when the crowd saw the cult and its mother crest the hill, their excitement over the situation just couldn't be contained any longer. Shouts of joy began to break out from the people, and travelers marveled as the disciples, they spread out their cloaks before him. And they put them on the back of the colt. And as Jesus mounted the colt, a voice broke out from somewhere in the crowd. Someone someone started to cry out, Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having uh, salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. 
the foal of a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And if you can picture this, and thinking about all of the people gathering there, the frenzy and the joy would have been inexpressible. They looked upon their Messiah. They looked upon the king. And expectation grew as the progression uh, moved towards the city. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the entire city was unglued. Nary a door was closed. All were out in the streets discovering that it was the prophet Jesus from Nazareth and the one they'd heard so much about in Galilee. They started to gather the able-bodied um, but yet sick and bring them to Jesus to be healed. Some of the children started crying out in the porticos of the temple, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And then the Pharisees began to mumble to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. See, look. See this, the senses? There is hearing. The Pharisees are hearing. But their hearts are hardened. The Pharisees were overwhelmed with what they were hearing. They were hearing, but they were not receiving. They had hard, stubborn hearts. There is a crowd who is hearing. They're dazzled. They're overwhelmed. But they're not really taking in what was happening. There's other hearing going on. The disciples are a part of this, and yet they still are a bit simple in their understanding. They're hearing, but they're not processing. It doesn't really sink in. They, they're still simple. Why is this? Well, in John's account, in chapter 12, verse 16, we read this. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him, had been, had, had been done to him. Did you catch that? Why were they not able to understand? Put your finger here. Turn with me two chapters to chapter 14. In verse 16 and 17. In the upper room, Jesus says to them these words, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You cannot know him, excuse me, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Notice that the world cannot receive. The Pharisees were concerned that their world was going after Jesus. Their world, their power, their prestige was going after Jesus. They didn't like it. Why can't the world receive it? Keep your hand here in chapter 12. Pull back to chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 19, excuse me, verse 9 to 13. 
John says that the true light, which gives light to everyone, that's a sight descriptive, was coming into the world. He was in the world, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You see, those who could see Christ as king, it was a gift. It was a gift and there was, a, there was an awareness that was given to them by Jesus. And when Pentecost took place, the Spirit opened eyes to be able to see who Jesus was. The Spirit is the one that produces a new birth and allows us to be able to see beyond the words that are on the page. It is the Spirit that gives life and meaning See, Judas was blind, the crowds were blind, the Pharisees were blind, the disciples were blind, but the only one who was seeing was Mary. And that in itself was a gift from God to her through Jesus in that moment. Romans ten seventeen says, So faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. I want us to think now about the seeing We've thought about the smell, we've thought about the hearing, but I want us to think now about the, the seeing, the actual seeing, the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want us to turn to another passage, to Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, into the Sermon on the Mount. Because there is so much that can cloud our hearts so that we really don't see as we ought to see. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus says in verse 19 to 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There will your heart be. And it is so frequent that our heart is actually not seeing because it's looking for other things. It's kind of like metal detecting. I know that there's some here in this room, particularly this one over here, who enjoys metal detection. But if you have a metal detector, that machine is calibrated to find certain things. You can adjust little dials on that machine and it will be recalibrated and it will be able to pick up other metals. And I think that's a helpful potential illustration because it's the calibration inside of the machine. And if we are a machine, it's a recalibration of our heart to be able to locate different kinds of treasure. But that recalibration doesn't come because we are the ones tweaking the knobs. It comes because it's a gift of the Holy Spirit that comes and dwells within us, giving us a new affection, a new desire for different treasures. Keep going in what Jesus says in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. 
But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is, that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? He's talking about the eye is kind of like a, a, a lamp, something through which light passes through and also goes both ways. In the ancient world, people would look at, at the eye and they would say, well, that person's full of life. I think maybe we can do that too. There's certain twinkle in certain people's eyes, right? You've ever had a conversation where you weren't sure if everything was upstairs? Right? I don't want to be rude, but you can see it in the eyes. Or actually, my wife can say, you're really not listening to me. I can tell in your eyes. Something's coming out. This is what Jesus is saying. And the question is, what is it that lights up your eyes? What's going to light up your eyes is what's inside the heart. What sparks joy? If you watch a decorating show or organization show, does this thing that's in your possession give you a sense of joy or spark joy? This is what Jesus is saying. There has to be a change on the inside. There has to be the light of the Holy Spirit on the inside. That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Read on, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And your reactions show what you treasure and what you care most about. And the reality is, is that the Pharisees cared for their world. They cared for their power. Judas cared for his greed, for his own money. He worshipped mammon rather than God. The crowd liked excitement. They were there for a show. They didn't were really there for God. And so that's how Jesus was able to interpret the pouring out of the ointment as worship. It was the flow of the heart. It wasn't wasteful at all. Jesus had the spiritual eyes to be able to interpret what Judas couldn't. Mary also had spiritual eyes. And I think we need to ask ourselves, do we have spiritual eyes? If Bible study is a bother to you, reading the Bible is a chore, singing songs about the gospel is boring, mingling with Christians is a duty, there's a good possibility that you might not have spiritual eyes because you don't have the Spirit. You're not born again. Paul calls faith itself, which the Spirit gives, but by which by nature you do not have the Spirit of faith. He calls it this in 2 Corinthians. Faith by nature, by itself, is a matter of the Spirit within you. What has been absorbed into the mind, we can have a, an intellectual sense about this book, but if we don't have a spiritual sense of this book, the Spirit's not there. One theologian 
put it this way. He said, For the word of God is not received by faith if it flits about in the top of the brain. But when it takes root in the depths of the heart, that it may be an invincible defense to withstand and drive off all the stratagems of temptation. If it's absorbed into the heart, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. The mind might understand the gospel. It's not intellectually hard. The mind may actually be tickled by reading the Bible. But a heart that has a distrust of the God who wrote and gave the word and the heart that has a reticence to stay away from the God who gave us this is a great blindness. But a movement of the heart to love the things of God is a work of the Holy Spirit. Make no mistake Now, it may be possible that you have had a sensitivity to the Spirit. You may actually have spiritual eyes, but it's possible for you to quench the Spirit. That's the other possibility, that you might be quenching the Spirit. If your mind says, and you want to say to me as pastor, hey, I'm here. Come on, man, I'm here. Listen carefully. You can be here but not lit up as the traces of Christ are being sung in the songs. You may be here but your heart is not moved by the word of God. You might be here but you you may not be engaging with Christ. See, Judas was with Christ but he loved something else more than Christ. Judas would sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. There are so many things that can enter into the world of a Christian who has been brought into relationship by the Holy Spirit that can quench the Spirit. Bitterness can quench the Spirit. If you cover up sin, you will not prosper. That will quench the Spirit. Another way that you may give evidence of a lack of spiritual sensitivity is an inability to properly assess yourself. You see, the Spirit of God moves in the heart and continues to bring conviction of sin. It's not just the the entrance into the kingdom of God. The Spirit continues to do a work of pointing out sin in your life. And if you ever get to a point where you say, I'm tired of just checking my own heart. Watch out. You're in a place of quenching the Spirit. If you are, on the other hand, able to convict others of sin without seeing the beam in your own eye, there is a good chance that you have started down this path of quenching the Spirit. We desperately need the Spirit of God to illumine, to show us Christ. It is the great gift that is ours because of the resurrection, which we are celebrating through this season. It came on Pentecost and is freely given to all who believe in him. It is a work of the Spirit 
He is the one who brings life. I was encouraged um, yesterday seeing the Pilgrim's Progress here with those who came, and it was uh, really interesting to see nuances that I hadn't picked up before, how Christian went into the house of the interpreter, and he was looking at different object lessons and learning interpretation in a, in a very similar way. Avoid, uh, uh, not having the Spirit of God in your life will make life meaningless. It will make it hard to understand and to follow Christ. The reality is, is that when we cannot see, we need to see how desperately we need to see. This is the idea, I believe, that is, is in this text. You might have all of your senses, but not be able to see. This Palm Sunday is a great opportunity to pause and reflect and think as we anticipate Good Friday, the resurrection. How much am I seeing How much do I really see? Is my heart being chased in other directions? 22 years ago, this very month, I discovered that I was very close to someone special, but I couldn't see her. We had been in history class together, and even we were in the same choir, but I had not even seen her yet. My life was clouded with all kinds of distractions. But it was not until I went through a time of breakup and getting other distractions out of my sight that my heart was reordered, it was recalibrated to be able to find someone whom God would want me to have. My curiosity was piqued on a week-long bus ride up through the Northeast and to this area, actually. And there was an open seat beside her on the bus. She was supposed to be studying history. I sat down beside her and the rest is now history. So that's really full of myself. (laughs) Sorry. But the reality is that life is full of blindness. But how greater is the spiritual blindness that we must cope with? We need to fall upon our knees and admit that we don't see as we ought to see and that we need the Spirit of Christ to show us what we need to see. The question is, I think still available to us, have you been born again? Have you been born again? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the gospel, but does it make sense to you? Do you love it? If it doesn't touch you in the heart, then the Spirit's not there. Or you may be worshiping other things. You may be quenching the Spirit, and I pray that you would come to Christ and see Him as all beautiful, worthy to pour out a lifetime of inheritance upon, worthy to give everything that you own for Him. If you're not able to give everything that you have for Him, you're not following Christ, you're following something else. 
Let's pray.